Welcome back to Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. You are listening to episode 26, titled Preparing for Grief with Reese Keller. I think we know that preparing for grief isn't really a thing. You can read all the resources, practice all the healing techniques, and still be blindsided by a grief event. Even as a professional grief coach, I experience grief just as viscerally and intensely as ever, and no, the work I do doesn't necessarily lighten my load right away. However, it does equip me with the support I need when I'm ready to move through my feelings, emotions, and behaviors that are impacted by grief, which, if you're confused, is all of the feelings, emotions, and behaviors all of them. (laughs) So today's guest is my friend Reese. He shares some of his own insight and story about anticipatory grief and what it looks like to move through loss with intention. I hope you'll hear something encouraging today because encouraging is Reese's entire brand, if you will. And what he wants to champion in you is pursuing the life you want, even when grief joins the storyline. Let's dig in. Well, hi, Reese. How are you today? Mandy, I'm doing really good. And I appreciate you inviting me onto the podcast. And I just can't wait to kind of just talk through these different ideas on grief literacy and see where we go. Me too. And I love that you have decided to dive into a conversation about grief as well, because you are this amazing success and like motivational coach for people. You and I met, like you were saying, almost a year ago, right? Just online through Twitter, simply because you champion people. You have become, and I've watched over the year, you've become someone that sees a good idea or sees uh, like a little piece of gold shimmering in someone's life and you grab it and you hold it above your head and you say, everyone, look at how beautiful this is. I want to see that grow in people too. And so it has drawn me to you in the respect of, of my work, just because grief is something where we don't necessarily feel championed. We don't necessarily feel supported. And I feel like what you carry in your life through your writing, through um, your new life Yoda brand, just showing up for other people is, is just imbued in who you are. So thank you for coming and taking time to just share a part of who you are and share kind of your ability to uh, show up for other people. So I want to ask you with all of that said, what is it about supporting others that brings you to life in a way that you think can carry over for grievers and grief supporters? That's a really good question. You know, (laughs) so on Twitter these days, there's a lot of folks that are connected with me and I, I get to hear a lot of different stories, but I'm reminded that four and a half years ago when I started it, it was zero. And what you find is as you start to meet people, even online, but especially in real life, the more times you come across their stories and the more times people will open up to you and almost invite you in to kind of have a a word or an influence in their life. Um, And it didn't take long to realize I am and I was still very ill-equipped to provide some type of positive impact to people who would open up in a vulnerable and authentic type of way. And so where I am now, four and a half years into growing that kind of 
social media platform and meeting more people and coming across more people, it's just highlighted the fact that I've got a lot to learn when it comes to grief literacy, um, to be able to leave a good impression and a good impact on people and not just waste time when people ask you to influence them. I think that's a great point that you make too, that social media has created this somehow, somehow created this ability for us to be very vulnerable with people that we don't know, probably because those people tend to be safer than the ones in our real life from time to time. Um, how have you approached when you recognize, oh, I have no skill set here. I don't know what to say. I don't want to layer platitudes on top of someone's honest offering of their story. Um, so what have you done for yourself as this person that you find keeps being offered vulnerability? Well, I think one of the best things I did was I interviewed a grief counselor and a grief coach. And this person had so much <laughs> insight for me. Her name was Mandy Capehart. But okay. <laughs> um, so one of the things that that I learned is just to ask people who are doing it a lot better than me. And it took a few years to figure that out, right? In the beginning, I was offering those platitudes. I was saying, you can get through this. I was saying like, hey, it's darkest before dawn. Hey, you know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. You're still alive. So you're still going. And, you know, after a couple of years of doing that, you realize, am I actually helping this person? Maybe some on the rare occasions, it does help and it gets somebody like, okay, maybe it's okay. But on the other occasions, you just don't really feel like you're having an impact. And I'm really passionate about impacting people in a positive way. And if I'm not doing that, I kind of feel like I'm wasting time, wasting breath, wasting words. And so I really wanted to learn how to do that better. And, and I remember one of the things that you told me was um, rather than trying to offer a solution to people when they open up and tell you something, to simply be present and be there and say, I am here and I want to walk through this with you. I don't know how and I don't have any answers for you. But hey, if you want somebody in your corner, the DMs are open, you know, and I'd love to be able to help you walk through this journey. Yeah, it's true. The uh, The willingness we have is often undercut by our ability to sit and be uncomfortable for people, right? We have this heart to show up and we really want to be encouraging. But like you said, we don't necessarily know how to be quiet and to hold space. And I think why social media has become this safe place to do that is because it's very easy to leave open space. I can't hear and see people. I'm just reading their words most of the time. So for someone to just the other day, I got a, a message from a gal I don't know who is working through my book and is stumbling left and right and sent me a message just asking, is this normal? Unpacked her heart. And when I saw the message, it was probably an hour or two after she'd sent it. And I thought I gave her so much space to panic about what she just said, truly, but also to unpack what she said and, and give herself some reflection and be able to see, oh, I, I was vulnerable there. And I maybe stumbled on some own things in my own story or experience. So that you're absolutely right. That ability to support each other is deepened in these social media relationships. In the current digital world, I think we need to recognize that what once used to be this taboo, you don't know who these strangers are, it's all very superficial. It's really become a place where, like you said, people have opened up and they're more authentic and more vulnerable to strangers in a sense than they are with family and friends, which 
causes all of us, I think, to take a step back and say, am I equipped to even help these people as a, as a layman, as a amateur kind of in the grief journey, as just a friend, as a potential just stranger hearing this story, somebody's chosen to open up, am I equipped? Do I have the tools to do this? And um, this really came, came to light for me, if I can share just a short little story, um, kind of personal a few years ago. Um, my grandmother had passed and right before she passed, we were kind of watching the developments and we were told, and we felt like this might be the last opportunity to go visit her and see her kind of one last time. And so she was living a couple of States away. So my wife and I, and our two boys at the time drove up there. And when we were thinking about like, well, how will we spend our time with her? How can we make this something that's memorable for her memorable for our children, you know, her uh, great grandchildren. Uh, what can we do? We thought, well, you know what? Maybe she would have fun just watching them open presents and just kind of play and maybe bring up some balloons and just kind of play some balloon games with her. Um, we really didn't know what to do kind of in these final moments of somebody dying. And so that's what we did. So we brought a whole bunch of presents up for the kids and we had them open them in front of her. And you could tell that she really enjoyed just seeing them happy. And she always bought presents and she loved to see the kids be happy. Um, and then we did the balloons. And so we were kind of passing balloons back and forth, tossing them, you know, trying to keep them from hitting the ground. Of course, they were, you know, bouncing on her. Um, and it was just a really joyful moment. But at the end, when we were packing up getting ready to go, knowing that this is probably going to be the last time we ever see her, especially multi-states away, having a family with small children. In my very logical, rational, ill-equipped mind, I felt like the best thing to do would be to help clean up. And so I just start popping balloons, right? And it's, it's one of those situations where I don't, I don't blame myself for making that decision because it was true ignorance, right? Um, but I regret it. And as we're popping the balloons, um, there was a hospice care worker that was there that day with us. And she stopped me and she said, leave that last balloon, you know, for, for grandma. Like, okay, you know, why is, is she going to have to pop it later? You know, I'm just trying to be helpful and clean up. Um, but that's kind of how, how out of touch I was with, the grieving process and helping somebody, you said it before, kind of die with dignity and support them kind of through these final moments. So we pack up and leave. And all I could think was like, what am I doing? Like, why am I, why am I doing that? Like, how sad is that as a, as a dying person probably felt here, my family is they're They're eliminating all this fun stuff as they say their goodbye. So not only are they leaving, but they're also kind of like eliminating these final fun things that they left. Right. Um, and of course, you know, she's passed. So I can't really ask her like, Hey, what did you think of that? Maybe she didn't care. Maybe she did, but it really just highlights that people like me who are not professionals, we are not experiencing grief situations. We're not experiencing uh, a lot of death. We're not going to a lot of funerals. Uh, we don't know a lot of, you know, just really serious heartbreak and trauma. Um, we're typically not personally studying up on how can I best support somebody who's going through 
one of these very serious situations, these moments in life. Um, and so when we talk about the digital world and we uh, deal with so many people, some on a deep level, some on a very superficial or a light level, it brings to mind how can we, who are listening to this podcast, better equip ourselves to be grief supporters, you know, and identify those who are going through a grief situation. But if we're not equipped to identify those signs and symptoms or to know that they're doing it, we're really missing out on a lot of opportunities to be great friends, great family, and good supporters. Well, even just the richness of life is is missed out on when you don't know what to look for. Um, I want to say, and this is not me telling you, don't regret things because do what you got to do. I have a suspicion your grandmother knew you well enough to know, oh, that's just Reese. He takes care of people and he cleans up and he serves. I'm so glad I had him here because that's you, you, we forget when we are grieving and when we are trying to rationalize a loss, right? We forget how most of the before our relationship with that person often is clouded by our devastation and fear of having lost them and lost the ability to make future connections and future conversations and new memories. So we have this idea that all the regrets God, that must've been the thing they thought about when they were dying, or that must be, I must've broken their heart in that moment. When the truth is, I probably care more about that tiny little thing. And in my experience, people who know they're dying, who have prepared, who are going through the process or who have not prepared and are going through the process for the most part have a tendency to care less about those little things and care more about the significant things. So and I say that for you, but also for me and for anyone listening, if you have this, oh, I screwed up in the last moments of their life, probably not on their mind, probably on their mind that they love you. And they're so glad they got to see you. Right. So that was just a little aside that I wanted to say, but how has that, how has all of that experience coming out of losing your grandmother and your conversations with people going forward shifted what you've done to prepare. I mean, when we know a grief event is coming, right? We know someone has been diagnosed and is terminal, or we anticipate that there will be a loss in any arena. Uh, Like I know I'm losing my job this week, whatever kind of a thing. How have you started to prepare yourself outside of interviewing professionals and reading every book you can find, right? I'm certainly not there yet. And I think there's a lot more that I could be doing to be able to support people or anticipate that they might be going through something. I find my biggest struggle is really not knowing or identifying kind of the signs or the symptoms that somebody else is going through something. I tend to have a really optimistic outlook on life. And most of the time, if I don't think I've got enough time to go deep with somebody, it's going to be like, hey, things are great, you know, never better, sun is shining, you know, it's awesome, right? And I'm not going to welcome people kind of into that that deeper kind of, hey, this is what's going on in my world so that they can support me and, and walk with me through it. And so consequently, I think I don't necessarily know when those who also express a very similar things are good, if they're actually going through something. Um I remember when I, when I first got out of college and I first got my first job, um, 
a, a supervisor, uh, his family member had passed away and he invited all of us to the funeral. Um, and I think that was probably the first funeral I ever went to as just a young, you know, post-college person. And it was like, wow, this is a whole world that I never really was familiar with. You know, like I said, I, I didn't have a lot of that death experience in my life. Um, and so when we get there and you start seeing how sobering everything is and just the gravity of the decisions and how we're using our time, it was very somber, but it was also really enriching as a reminder of like, okay, how are we going to use our time with those that we know, those that we love, um, the friendships that we make? And then after going to a, a couple more of those funerals and kind of having those almost not annual reminders, but every couple of years, it seemed like we were getting this really big reminder of life is a vapor. It's not forever on this planet, on this side. And so use it, you know, use the time that you've got to make a good impact. Um, and so I think I've been more open to just experiencing that side of life and not like saying, no, I'm not going to go to that funeral because that's just too big. You know, that's too serious. But just saying, I don't know, maybe the person that has died, but I was invited by a friend or a coworker or a family member. And I'm going to go there for them. And more than likely, I'm going to be more positively affected by the message and the people and just being reminded of the fragile, you know, the, the fragileness of life than me doing something for them. It's almost just, I'm just going to be present. And it's been really enriching. You know, there's not a lot of that in, in my line of work, not a lot of that in my life with the relationships that I have. But the times that I have been able to go to those types of events have been a really rewarding experience. Beautiful, because I think the most valuable thing we have is time. Like you said, life is a vapor and where we put our attention is where we put our value. Your willingness to spend your time, to invest it truly in being even a guest at a funeral service for someone you barely knew or didn't know is that physical act of agreement that I will be uncomfortable because this is an awkward part of life. And yet it's part of life. It's something I cannot avoid. It's something I will go through personally as an individual. It's something my family and people I love are going to go through. And the wisdom and the insight it takes to decide at our age, especially if you haven't dealt with any face-to-face -face grief or really a, a lot, right? It doesn't take much actually, but um, sometimes it doesn't come to the surface as important or worth our attention. But the willingness to dive into that is just such a beautiful sign of, again, that side of you that is invested in people and interested in helping and supporting um, no matter what it costs you. And it, I love that too, because it's the opposite of picking up a grief book, right? It, books are wonderful. They're incredible tools. They're usually full of wisdom and insight uh, and someone's story, which is crucial. But when you have an opportunity to learn from the person who wrote the book, right? Like a professor you find is teaching from their own curriculum. That's amazing because the richness of what their story actually is would never have been included in the book. You can't capture it. So your investment in people is such an intricate and delicate way to explain, Hey, I see you and I'm with you as long as it takes, even if it's uncomfortable. And I think to I just wanted to say one of the things you mentioned was you're not really sure or you're learning how to like figure out, oh, is this person, are they just saying they're fine or are they not saying they're fine? Do you have any like tips or like, hey, this is my opening line to like say, oh, it's cool. I have 20 minutes if you're not okay. 
or do you like just panic and run? <laughs> panic and run. No, I, I panic and hide. I run and hide. Um, no, I, and I think that's where, you know, I really lean on people like you who, who could see, you know, like, uh, no, something in their tone, something in their voice. There's no way that they're fine. Right. For me, I've noticed, and I don't do a very good job at this, but I've noticed giving people the time allows some of that to come out because, and it reminds me of something that you said actually a while back, you had said that a lot of people couldn't understand the enormity of your emotions and your sorrow when you were dealing with, with grief in your past. And what I found is that a lot of times like these superficial, you just bump into somebody or you've only known somebody for a little, a little amount of time, like they're not going to open up to this huge thing that's happening with them or what they're struggling with. They don't even know if you can handle it. Right. And they probably are assuming that you can't handle it. But the times that I've made time for those relationships where we've done lunch, we've gone together for breakfast, we've met, you know, regularly, we've talked on the phone for a longer period of time. It's like after a while, you're almost invited into that sacred space where it's like, okay, I can trust that you've got some good intentions at heart for me. I am going to reveal this thing about me or what I'm going through to you. Let's see how you handle it. And it's not like this very conscious thing. Like it's a very subconscious, subtle art that I think all humans are like doing subconsciously, but it's like, let's see how you handle this. And if you do a good job, maybe I'll give you a little bit more because there's much fewer people who are intentionally authentic and vulnerable. And they know that the other person may not be able to handle it but the person sharing is a big enough person to say whatever they kind of give me back, whether it's a good response, a bad response, a platitude, you know, a recommendation, I can, I can take it, internalize it, use what's good, get rid of what's bad, you know, and, and help them along in this process. Right. But those types of people are far and few between. And so it seems like to me uh, just the more time and space we give people to trust us, Sometimes happens with just having fun together and sometimes it happens with not talking much and, you know, letting them talk. And sometimes it happens with probing and trying to pull things out of them. It seems like that's where the gravy is. Um, just being able to spend time with people, which is hard because as we go back to this theme of we're dealing with not just a few people online, we're dealing with tens of thousands of people. I think I, the last you know 30 days of, of just Twitter interactions, I mean, there's, there's literally hundreds of thousands of people coming across content that I'm creating, content that you're creating, because we all know that you get more engagement than I do. But as we both grow, right, we're dealing with millions of people. And how can we live in such a way or react in such a way that it would make people want to reach out to us. It would make them want to send us a note or want to say something to us and trust that we'll have something to say to them in return that wouldn't be just them wasting their breath. And I think that's the struggle. And I certainly don't have the answer for it, but I was hoping that you might. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I don't have answers. I have ideas. This is my lot in life. I used to believe I had answers. And I was obnoxious and nobody wanted to be around me. I didn't really want to be around me. So I don't have answers, but I do will say this, that you're right. The more time that you spend intentionally investing and being present with people, 
with no pressure, right? Not with the expectation like dating of I'm trying to see if I can fall in love with you. You're just showing up and be like, I just wanted to remind you that we're connected, that we have a foundation of compassion and connectedness between us. And you seem like someone who could use a friend. On a side note, there's a book by John Townsend that came out a few years ago called People Fuel. And it's about the circles and the type of people you need to look for that can, it helps you identify like these people support your energy gains. These people drain your energy. These are the people you're looking for to kind of build like this essential life team around you. And in grief, we have this wrong idea that everyone has abandoned us sometimes, or everyone is trying to get a piece of me, right? There's, I find that there's really no (laughs) in-between. There might be people who are like, no, I had a great balance of everyone who gave me space and who showed up for me. But the reality is everyone tends to say, oh my gosh, just let me know what you need. When the truth is like, we don't know as grievers what we need. Um, And I love this book because it helps you as an individual recognize, like, I don't owe my story to everyone. I can find 10 people on Twitter and feel safe to say something. But if I don't, that's actually normal. It's humans aren't designed to have thousands of relationships. I think one study I I read said you have the ability to know like 150 people and that's it at any given time. Right. So you think about the number of people you're trying to build and knowing them includes your cousins, includes your aunts and uncles, includes your siblings. Like that's it. It suddenly becomes a very small group of people when you think about the family connectedness. But um, anyway, what I wanted to say was I think recognizing people's soft spots where they need support starts with knowing what disenfranchised grief is and ambiguous grief. So it's that all of the grief that's connected in life, it's not a death. That's not illness necessarily. So loss of a job, loss of a pet, loss of a friendship, uh, loss of an expectation, loss of financial gains, like all of these things where we put our expectations and our hopes create opportunities for grief. Now that doesn't mean we run away. That's where that phrase risk versus reward comes in, right? What we're risking is not just losing a financial investment. We're, we're risking something that's really valuable to us in a way we can't necessarily describe. And I think that when we start to pay attention to those little events in people's lives, especially when it's online, because we can't hear their tone, we're just reading their words, right? We can kind of put together a picture that includes subtext. I'm a big fan of subtext because when someone says, oh, I'm doing great. Yeah. Mm -hmm." The subtext is, well, how's their face look when they say it? How's their body language? What's the sound of their voice? But online, I just look back at their, you know, their wall, their, their billboard that says, actually, this is how I'm doing. All I'm sharing is, you know, cynical takes on politics and heartbroken responses to the world around me. I would look at that and say, oh, this person is probably in some pain and that's hard. It's also okay. So I think recognizing and practicing that skill set of being able to read between the lines, but also allowing them to exist before they, before you like show up, I would never just blindly direct message someone and say, Hey, it looks like you're grieving. Do you want to work together? Because that's invasive, (laughs) but knowing that, okay, reminder, the world is not okay right now. I have to walk that fine line of offering hope and support and be willing to be quiet on both fronts. Right. So that, I mean, there's my answer as to what I would do. (laughs) 
what would you say in in terms of you know those of us who want to initiate vulnerability and authenticity with other people if you were to do it what would you be looking for in the other person that you would say this person seems to be open for me sharing and this other person i want to share my grocery list with what i guess what kind of either red flags or just symptoms could we adopt to become people who other people would feel safe to say hey i'm going through this thing you know can you be there with me through it or you want to just talk about it it's a really good question even though you are totally turning the tables on me and asking me the questions i would say being honest and straightforward and just saying i see that you might be in pain i'm here for you i don't want to fix anything for you, but if you need a sounding board, I'll be a a soft space for you to land. I think the other side of it too, is as a grief supporter, as someone who wants to support others in grief, looking back into your own story and getting familiar with your own experiences of grief is really important. It's one thing to run headlong into a fire, wanting to put a forest fire out. It's quite another to run in after you've been trained and you know what to do when you get there. And our heart for people is to be firefighters and to make it better. But the truth is most of us don't know that you dig a trench and let it burn. And in grief, if we don't let things burn, if we don't let our feelings get felt, if we don't wrestle with the depth of what we are swimming through, we will not learn how to swim and end up losing parts of ourselves that we had always hoped we could hold on to even through loss. So I mean, what's your experience? Have you had a moment where it just went completely wrong? You tried to support someone and it went badly? I don't think so. Um, Lucky. Oh. I, I must have just blacked it out of my mind. You know, the, the times that it didn't work out too well, it's just like, no, oh, let's just pretend that never happened. I feel like that's probably the, the majority of cases out there are people who aren't as familiar or in touch with the impact of grief in a grieving situation, which causes me to think that with as much time as we spend preparing for inevitable things, like we prepare for retirement, we prepare for, maybe some don't, but we prepare for family, we prepare for the birth of a child, we prepare for, you know, our our credit score when we're about to put a mortgage down, you know, and we prepare for so much Yet, as the old saying goes, right, the only two certainties of this life are death and taxes, right? But we don't really prepare for moments of grief. And it seems like in a, in a fallen, broken world, and what I mean by that is that there is pain, there is suffering, there is trauma, there is hurt, there is loss of expectations, there is you know unexpected outcomes in this broken world that we live in, it's pretty inevitable that either we are coming out of a grieving situation, we are going into a grieving situation, or we know somebody who is on one of those two places, right? But we really don't spend a lot of time preparing for being able to support people as grief supporters really well, or even be able to handle it ourselves. I think you said in the past that when we are in a moment of grief, we're not really thinking right. Like our brain is not going to be working. Our heart's not going to be working at the same level, I guess you could say, as it was right beforehand when everything was going super good, right? But in the moment of grief, everything is kind of topsy-turvy. 
we don't really know who to go to. We don't really want to go to anybody. We kind of start isolating or, you know, doing something that's really not, you know, healthy or beneficial. And yet we haven't really prepared for that outcome, which is nearly inevitable for everybody on this planet. And so lately I've been thinking through, you know, it's like what type of, of anticipatory grief preparedness, you know, should all of us really be trying to incorporate in our lives? And I, I'm sure you've got some, some thoughts on that. One of the biggest ones that came out to me is the circles that you talked about in that book is that who are the people that we are surrounding ourselves with? Because I've asked, I've asked the Twitterverse, how many friends do you have? How many great friends do you have, right? And the great thing about social media is you can get immediate survey results from a wide variety of people, a good cross-section of our generation, right, that's using technology. And it's it's sad. It really is sad. The results are sad. And I am in that a lot of times with these results that they don't meet the expectation, or at least they don't meet what you think would be the best possible outcome for a grieving situation. How many close friends do you have? How many family members do you trust that you can go to? How many people, you know, do you know that would invite you into their home? Or how many people would help you survive a financial downturn? Or, you know, and the list could probably go on and on. But the time to prepare for grief, right, isn't in the moment of grief. It's like preparing for retirement the day you walk out of your job. It's like, no, that's the worst possible time to prepare for retirement. Yet with something as inevitable and serious and powerful as a grieving situation, we kind of wait until we're in it to decide, yeah, I think I can handle it. Or I don't know what to do. All is lost. And so really, you know, I would love to find ways of how do we prepare for that just as seriously as we prepare for all the other things that are important in life and that are less probable than a grieving situation. So there is an amazing book called Get Your Shit Together by Chanel Reynolds. It's it's about grief. It's It touches on finances as well, which was so wonderful to hear you say that because I worked in finance once upon a time. I was not an advisor, but I constantly wondered why are people in their 60s coming to us that didn't come to us in their 30s? And it's such because I'm in my 30s and it's hard. Like it would be really easy to take all that money and just be like, cool, I need it now, but I'm going to need it then too. So side note, Chanel Reynolds became a widow very like overnight. And she realized she had so much to figure out that she decided to turn into the person that helps others figure out what matters most and how to make sure that all of those ducks are in a row, so to speak. Now that's the practical, that's money management, that's wills, that's life insurance, all the things. The emotional that you're talking about, in my opinion, it comes down to three people that you can set up ahead of time because these are people you would go to if you're celebrating as well. And I borrowed from Brene Brown and to name them of the strong back, the soft front and the wild heart. So the strong back is the person that runs interference, right? The one that takes the phone calls and says, no, she doesn't need that. Or yes, this is what, and stop saying platitudes and, and go away, or you get over here, whatever it is, right? It's the person that can fight for you. The soft front is the person that is approachable and tender and available to 
coordinate meals and set up childcare or bring people in to pray for you if you want or clean your home. That soft heart person is the one where it's easy to fall apart with them because they're not there just to get the practical done. And the wild heart is that person who can be spontaneous and bring joy into your world in a way that you maybe have lost sight of or who will text you out of nowhere a funny thing or an encouragement or even just a hey it's okay that it sucks today kind of a thing so those are my those are my three people right i have those people in my life they are people i am consistently in contact with on a regular basis so that when shit hits the fan I know that I am safe with these people. And some people might be like, well, I have someone that fits all those, all those bills. That's great. But there's a, there's a level of invitation when it comes to these roles, right? Especially with grief, because it would be one thing for me to look at those three friends and say, oh yeah, that's who this person is. This person's my wild heart. This person's my strong back. This is my soft front. But if I never invite them into it, I am going to rely on them in a way that they might not have capacity for. So just being intentional in your life prepares you to be intentional when grief comes around because it's, it will. And preparedness is not, it's not the same as having a backpack in the car, ready to go in an emergency, right? This is finding ways to reintegrate your heart, your mind, your body, and your spirit when grief shows up because they become disparate and they're all trying to get back into center and back into alignment. So I want to give you the last word here. So before I do that, will you tell all of our listeners how to find you on social media since you are available and encouraging? (laughs) Yeah. You know, the funny thing about being what I would call on the internet for a really long period of time is the internet has unfortunately you know, saved and recorded, you know, everything about what you've written or shared for a really long time, whether it's really smart or it's really bad. Right. And so thankfully I've got a unique spelling of my first name, which is R H Y S and then last name Keller K E L L E R. But if, if somebody were to Google, you know, Reese Keller, there's going to be a bunch of stuff that pops up probably half of it. You know, you, you don't even need to look at, you don't need to read, don't even worry about it. But it will take you to my website, reesekeller.com, which is all focused on helping people be more successful at work and at home. I just love to write. I love to share stories and try to give people insight and just little nuggets to help. I'm on different social media platforms, you know, and I'm always open to just kind of sharing the journey of life, you know, with other people. And I would love to just help more people. I do want to say something that you said I, I really love, you know, about having the people who can best support you in the down times are the same people that support you in the good times as far as celebrating life. And I think that's that's really awesome. There's something that, that I love, actually, a quote that, that you had given. It says, say yes to people that feel like sunshine. And I think we're not as intentional as we need to be on choosing people who we want to build friendships with. We leave so much to chance. And so what I want to challenge myself with and what I want to challenge our listeners with is this week, especially say yes to someone or someone's that feel like sunshine to invite people in that you want to celebrate life with to begin building that grieving shield for when you are grieving, you've got somebody who can also work with you in those downtimes. So I wish I could take credit for that quote. I don't know who said it, but once upon a time I heard it when I was young and I thought that that's it. 
I want to feel like sunshine to people. And then of course, storm clouds come in and you, all the things, but you're like, no, 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 this is my heart. I want to do this thing. Um, okay. My last question, what is something that you in your own journey through grief and, and through life that what is something that someone else has done for you to come alongside you as one of those strong back, soft front, wild heart people that just moved the needle for you. That was so meaningful in your process to heal. Mm. Thank you. Like maybe couple of weeks I'll think about that and I'll get back to you with a really really good answer <laughs> you know what's funny sometimes I think back on a really good friendship that I had where I was meeting with a guy we would meet Saturday morning I think it was like at 6 a.m we were both family guys married kids time is of the essence and it originally started because he was going through things in his life and he needed somebody to really just walk with him and so I, we started meeting together. And I think in the beginning, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm helping this person. I am going to kind of serve them and journey through life with them. But what it turned into, and I should have known, but what it turned into was just the two of us doing life together. You know, just two guys every week for months. I don't even know how long it went on. And we had since moved to different locations. And so we don't do that anymore. But I always think back to just how special that was. And I don't, you know, I don't have a metric for the impact that that had. Right. And I, I don't, I didn't record. These were the things I was going through and because he was there, you know, I, I shared and he shared. And now, you know, the, the return of investment of my time and relationship with him is X, right? Like it wasn't like that, but I look back on that time, whether it was six or eight months as just a really enriching rewarding moment in life that reminds me it's really good to have a close friend and to have a close friend it means making time for that person and i couldn't i couldn't do that with 50 people right like you said like hey 150 we might be topped out i couldn't do that with 50 people and i probably couldn't have even done that with two or three but in those 6 to 8 months i was able to do it with one and it was a really good time in my life and I think back to it, it's just, that was a great time in my life of just growth and sharing and fun, right? It's just good friendship. And I think, you know what, there's these seasons and there's these cycles, you know, where we can't make room for 50, but we could make room for one. And it might just be, you know, the time in our life that we look back to 10 years from now and say, man, that was good. That was good stuff. You know, I want to do that again, right? And just be more intentional about how we're spending our time and who we're spending our time with. I love that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your heart and for being honest and for spending your time with me today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mandy. Thank you for inviting me on. It was, it was really great and learned a lot from you. Woo <laughs> thank you for listening to episode 26 of Restorative Grief. Reese affirmed how our lives flip upside down when we grieve. It's not just you. We know it's unavoidable, but with a little awareness, we just might find a way to bring some alignment into ourselves on all sides of the loss, including the way we live before we even realize we're grieving. If you're new to restorative grief, I want to welcome you. I am fully aware that this ongoing conversation about loss and life is complicated, nuanced, and not a one-size-fits-all situation. And that's kind of our specialty. 
We want to help you engage your own grief story in a way that makes sense to you, even if it's nonsense to everyone else. So today, take a moment to subscribe to the show, leave a review, and maybe share this episode with someone else who knows grief is coming to their life. It could be just the thing that helps them move through their loss with a little bit of hope. And one last thing, please remember, the only solution for grief is to do the work of grieving. Thanks for listening. I'll see you soon.